Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajasad, and with me as always is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. I will reiterate, Ben and I, we're, we're best buds, and we're automotive journalists. Right, Ben? That is correct on both counts. In fact, you can find Ben's work all over the internet, which is this beautiful place where you can find my work too. But I'm going to let Ben talk about what he's been doing recently. Can you do that, Ben? Sure. You can find my work online at Motor Trend, at Driving Line, at an Inside Hook, and on newsstands at car at and on newsstands in Car and Driver. And you can find my work at Autotrader.ca as well as Driving.ca, Nouveau Magazine, and TechSpot. Ben, let's talk some cars today. What do you think? Sounds good to me. Do you have anything else you want to get off to chest before we start talking about the cars? No, I feel like it's a full cars-focused episode. Okay, so I'm going to start us off. I've, dro- I've driven the new 2022 Hyundai Elantra, and you know what? We've talked about this car before, but the trim model I drove is pretty special. It's, it's very specific, and it's known as the N-Line. N is in Nancy line, okay? So this is kind of like it's almost a performance version, but it's not? Yeah, so there is a Hyundai Elantra N, as in Nancy. Yes. Um, and there is one of those, and that's a, supposed to be a performance version of the uh, Hyundai Elantra. The N line is the step below that, and uh, it, it still fits within the Elantra lineup. So I think the N line is treated as something, uh, sorry, the N is treated as something differently, and the N line is kind of like uh, like an M Sport or AMG line or uh, S line, I don't know, like that kind of thing. So I think I'm, the I'm best... assuming it looks like an N, but is probably not as hardcore. Yeah, I think that's the best way to describe it. It has some sporty 18-inch wheels, it's got uh, blacked out grill and uh, bigger kind of like intakey looks intakey elements on the front bumper i don't know if those are real or not um and as usual this is the same sharp kind of creased design language that hyundai has been pushing recently um and i think it works pretty well in this car we had a a bright red example of it and um i don't know i have some feelings i think I, i have to talk about this car a little bit more I will also add that I drove the model probably with the with the wrong transmission. I had it with the DCT. It has a seven speed DCT, and I think you can also get it with a six speed manual. And I have a feeling like that would be the the manual would probably be the choice for most enthusiasts picking this car, right? Yeah, I, and you know I just wanted to circle back to the the body style or sorry the the styling that you mentioned. I do think Hyundai has done a pretty good job of creating a design language that works on large and small vehicles. You know, it doesn't necessarily look awkward on something small and it doesn't necessarily look overbearing on something larger like the Sonata. It's kind of a, they've kind of hit the sweet spot with these cars. I'm not saying it's the most attractive design language out there, but when you look at a Hyundai now, you know that's what it is. Like It's it, yeah. unmistakable. I think that's fair. I think they, they used to, I think they used to borrow or they were some inspiration um for their designs in other places and now it feels like they're designing their own distinctly their own look and i think that's really working out for them so you saying that the seven speed dct was probably not the right choice so this it comes with a 1.6 liter engine turbocharged four cylinders 201 horsepower or up to 201 horsepower i'm assuming that means that you need premium fuel and 195 pound-feet of torque. Now, is that engine different than what you would find in a non-N-line car? 
Yeah, so the normal, uh, the gas-powered, en- uh, sorry, the gas-powered Elantra uses a two-liter four-cylinder engine with 147 horsepower, which is not a lot, and even worse, 132 pound-feet of torque. So this is a substantial improvement. Right. And the the engine is pretty good. I think we've we felt this 201 horsepower engine um, in, in various different applications. This time it has um, some new technology that I can't be bothered to explain called CVVD. <laughs> um, honestly, the engine still feels pretty punchy. Uh, lots of good torque down low, 195 pound-feet of torque down low. And the, the transmission is important because other versions of the Elantra – Say for the N, the full bore N, use a CVT, and this uses a like a traditional uh, six-speed manual or a DCT. That is a That's, really that is a really big difference. Yeah, it, especially when you're talking like um, now. Now I will admit, I think that CVTs and turbos kind of go together um, because they can match the they can try to mitigate turbo lag. Yeah, you can case. keep you in boost for a very long time if you want to, but they lack feeling. I think if that makes sense. For sure, it's it's an indirect it's an indirect way to drive a car. Yeah, um, but if you're looking for something a little bit more uh, engaging, a DCT will do the trick. But I think Hyundai still needs to work out a couple of the kinks in their in their DCTs. And I think we should also talk about what the N line brings to the table that a previous Hyundai Elantra didn't. And I'm going to specifically bring up a model that we used to know as the Elantra Sport. And this was the first time, I think, Hyundai designed a product that was meant to go up against um, products like the the Volkswagen Jetta GLI, the uh, Honda Civic Si, and um, I'm trying to think of some other performance, uh, mild performance cars. Uh, like the, uh, the the Kia, there was a, uh, a Kia, what was it? The, GT. Yeah. The, the Forte G- GT. The Forte GT. Now, I've driven the Elantra Sport that you're talking about, and I remember there was also a similar car called the Elantra GT that, yeah. that was offered. So the interesting thing about those two vehicles is they weren't the same platform. I think the GT was a hatchback they imported from Europe. I think it was an I-Series hatchback, if I remember correctly. And it had similar power uh, and whatnot to the sedan Elantra, but it was more raucous. It had like a more aggressive tune. And when you shifted to the sedan, it didn't feel as exciting. Like it was still a solid vehicle and it had decent performance, but it lacked something of those visceral thrills that the GT had. So when you compare the the new Elantra N-Line to the Elantra Sport, is it an upgrade in that respect? I honestly, I don't think it is. I think it's kind of a plateau, and I'm really disappointed in that regard. Because when the Sport came out, I remember Hyundai saying, we've made it louder, we put this really beefy exhaust on it that, that like, growled all the time. And the N-Line kind of has that noise as well. They also put performance tires on it. The N-Line has the performance tires. Yeah, they're 18-inch they 18, the... 18 alloy wheels. Yeah. Yes, I then... see that in the, in the press release I'm looking at right now. They've changed the rear suspension. They've made an independent rear suspension, which I don't think the standard vo- the standard vehicles have. And the N line also continues that trend. And they put you know bigger rotors uh, and improved braking on this. To me, it just feels like a like a they took the the Elantra Sport and brought it to the new generation vehicle, and that's it. I don't think they touched enough with the vehicle to improve it in any way or form. Okay, but which it, is fine. It, but it also doesn't mean a lot right well i'm gonna i was gonna say they have to be careful because they have a vehicle to protect in the form of the actual elantra n right that's so true if you're going into this vehicle as a buyer you have to know 
this is not the most hardcore Elantra, and that if you want that, you can get that somewhere else. It's not necessarily a failing that this vehicle isn't more exciting than the Sport, is it? Um, no, but I always feel like a car should improve. And I mean, yeah. I guess this gets the same interior improvements that the current Elantra got over the over the outgoing one, right? Like, so the, the it, you know, it's got a nicer infotainment system, a digital dash, When if you... Uh, actually, this one didn't have a digital dash. Now that I think about it, but did you um, did you like the new platform more than the old platform? Yeah, very much so. I found it to be pretty um, competitive, with the exception of one small usability issue, which is a giant handlebar that separates the passenger and driver. Wait, why? What is that there for? I don't know. <laughs> is it still there? Know. Is it still there? If you have, like, is it on the passenger side? Yeah, yeah. That's like remember in the Corvette where it had that similar kind of yeah. uh, the the C8 Corvette. Sep- it, it just separates the driver and the passenger. Yeah, it's just there to like make it impossible for your passenger to interact with the climate controls in the Corvette, <laughs> which are inexplicably on the center console, so you can hit them with your elbow and arm. Uh, I, but, you know, I want to circle back to something you said at the beginning of the podcast, which is that you didn't like the DCT. You still haven't told me why. Oh, no, it's not that I didn't like it. I just think that the DCT needs a – like, as usual, I think some of these DT, DCTs can feel a little choppy at times, and this – Especially at low speeds, can feel a little choppy. Maybe it hangs around in first gear for too long or in second gear for too long, and you're just like, this doesn't feel like how I would have driven the car. And I, I assume it's got multiple manual. multiple driving modes, right? Like, do the, yeah, do it's those got different... impact how it shifts. Yeah, absolutely. Like a sport mode really just holds onto those gears, um, and then there's like a smart instead of eco. They use smart Ugh. in the in Hyundai lineup. I never and... used to know what smart meant in Hyundai, like whether it was like. I don't see it, it being a stealth. I agree with you. I didn't know it was a stealth eco. So I was like, oh, smart. It, that must mean dynamic or adaptive, right? And that's what I thought because I think when I've driven some Kia models with this, this smart drive mode, it used to have like a little spe- like a spectrum that would say like sport and eco and like smart was in the middle, right? Like so it was kind of blending those two those two worlds. And this doesn't it, – I think it's just the – you're right, stealth eco mode. Man. They got you. I don't want to be tricked into saving fuel. I mean, put it, (laughs) throw it in my face. Let me know that I'm, you know, Captain Planet. But don't, don't go behind my back. I'm curious about what the, not just what the take rate is on the Elantra N. I don't think that matters too much, but I do think that vehicles in this class still matter, even if there is a hardcore version of a of a compact um, vehicle. There should still be that whatever lukewarm version of it which is still fun to drive that that gives you a taste without going overboard. I, I totally this- I totally agree. I mean, the alternative is what you're stuck with the 140 horsepower version of the Elantra. I mean, that's yeah. that, that kind of sucks like if those if that's your only choice. And then I mean, when you put in I personally really enjoyed the um the Civic the previous Civic SI which had like a adjustable suspension for example, which was really solid and felt really good and it had a great transmission and manual transmission as well. Um, I still feel like that's a pretty good vehicle, and I've heard good things about the jet, the outgoing Jetta GLI as well. So there are still like competitive vehicles in this in this class, and I don't think just re- remaking what you did before with the new platform and new design language is enough, right? Like 
it kind of that kind of disappointed me a bit. But you know, vehicles like the GLI and the SI are kind of exceptions because for the GLI, there's nothing above it, and there never has been, right? Like that's right. always been the quickest version of the Jetta. There's never been a Jetta R or anything like that, and there never will be uh, no. because in Europe, no one buys a Jetta, so it just doesn't make sense for Volkswagen from a volume perspective. But this the SI was in a similar position because the Type R is a relatively new entry to North America. Yep. So for a very long time, the SI, with a few exceptions, was the top dog in the Civic lineup. So it always kind of they never went um you know full turbo crazy with it but they did do their best to keep it competitive with things like the gti and so but i imagine with the last generation civic they knew that a type r was coming and they could have totally phoned it in with the with the si and they didn't no but they have you know the si has toned down over the years i mean it used to be a very high revving kind of a raw feeling vehicle and now increased displacement from the engine and a little more torque and a little less revs it's changed the personality of it for sure well they did that they they had it used to be a 2.4 liter and now it's i think it's a turbo now right? it used to be a two liter you know back in the day with yeah a very high red line yeah um so i mean i shouldn't talk too much um i mean this thing still costs $24,000, which I think is a pretty reasonable price for a vehicle with 200 horsepower and still um, decent steering, good sounding motor, um, aggressive design. I think it it fills certain needs, but it isn't an enthusi- it isn't as enthusiast friendly as I would have imagined. And, you know, it's still cheaper than a WRX. You're looking at 27, oh, yeah. 27.5 if you want to get into a WRX, which would be, I think, uh, a bridge between uh, an Elantra N and the Elantra N line. And they just um, – did they just recently announce a new WRX? Is that yeah, there's a 2022 right model, but we're not going to talk about it because I'm, because still, it's I'm the, still processing. And your eyes are bleeding every time. Yeah, okay. Well, okay, I guess, I guess we are going to talk about it. So, again, <laughs> podcasting is not a visual medium, but I urge everyone who hasn't seen it yet to go take a look at the 2022 Subaru, Subaru WRX. It is riding on, finally, a new platform, which we haven't had in quite a long time for this car. But it is bringing some styling elements with it that have me questioning why they made those choices. Specifically on the fenders and the undercarriage, but mostly the undercarriage, the, the sills, but mostly the the fenders there are these giant plastic extrusions that are vented and it re- it's trying to give the sedan a, an suv or a crossover feel what i don't understand sammy if they wanted to create a crossover version of the wrx the crosstrek is sitting right there in the showroom they could have done that and many people would have bought it i myself would have been interested but instead Instead, they've kind of like the separation of church and state is gone. And they're like, now it's going to be a sedan that looks like a crossover, but isn't practical. And I'm just like, why? You look at the rear, too. It has this ugly plastic bumper that just juts out like a strange black wing. Yeah, It's just odd. Odd all around. Now, let's be clear. I don't think styling has been um, a staple of the Subaru uh, product offerings for years for years if not the entirety but why, of the vehicle but why intentionally do this right like <laughs> i think they don't know what is cool and what looks no, good no. and they just try man i think it is universally understood that unpainted black plastic is not attractive and it should minimize the amount that you use as an accent instead they went all in on unattractive unpainted black plastic and made it like a centerpiece of the design language of this vehicle 
Which is so funny because if you if since this is a, an audio medium, if I told our listeners right now this thing still comes with the manual transmission, they've changed the motor to a 2.4 liter turbocharged um, engine. It makes 271 horsepower and 258 pound feet of torque. That sounds like good thing, especially because it's still got all wheel drive. I mean, I haven't driven it yet, so maybe it's fun to drive. But at the same time, it didn't have to look like this. It didn't have to look like that. That's right. So I think. Uh, we don't have pricing on it yet, but I think you're right. It would it would be more expensive than a Hyundai Elantra N line. Um, definitely harder to, harder to look at, and uh, I don't know this class of vehicles. I don't know how much longer we have these classes. This class of vehicle because um, sedans are slowly disappearing and crossovers are taking over. Well, it's strange because that you used to be able to get a hatchback version of the WRX until yeah. like what 2011 or 2013, yeah. something like that, and and. It was fifty percent of sales. It was very, very popular, and for a there while, there was no reason for them to just be like, "Ah, we're done with this." No, and for a while, the STI was hatchback only. You couldn't mm-hmm. get a sedan version. So Subaru has made a number of puzzling about faces in terms of their product position on this vehicle. Uh, I myself would really like a Crosstrek WRX. Please make that happen. That sounds really cool because if there's one thing that Crosstrek is missing, it's power. Uh, yeah. It is really. I mean, even when they added that they put a new engine in it, and still didn't feel like this is an improvement. Like this is this is what it should have been from the get go. I mean, it's a great <laughs> it's a great body shape, and I think if they slammed it just a little bit, it would still be cool and practical and fun. I think I see people lowering. I mean, I think it's a common thing for Subaru enthusiasts to lower their SUVs, which I think is really a fun. Yeah, a fun I trick. mean, uh, there's certain generations <laughs> of Forester that look really cool lowered. Yeah, and I, believe and, and I think made, Outbacks as well. Some yeah, and they made a Forester STI in Japan, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm missing the enthusiast market sometimes with these cars. It seems like you either get a mundane SUV, uh, a mundane sedan, a bigger SUV with a little bit more power, um, and everything that you want that is catered to the S- to the to the enthusiast just seems a little like lacking in terms of passion. Yeah. Well, you know. We are our own worst enemies when it comes to not buying these cars new. I guess that's I mean, true. you bought your car new. You bought your enthusiast car new. So I can't – you're carrying the torch for people like me. Yeah, and I'm never going to give it up <laughs> so that nobody can take advantage of, rese- of poor resale value. So uh, do you have anything else you want to add about the N-Line? Like, well, is this a car that you recommend people should at least drive if they're in the market for something that is sort of fun but not super hardcore? I think they have to because there are so few of these cars left. Um, Civic SI is going, or Civic is going through uh, a redesign. I, we don't know when the new SI will be coming. There's a Kia Forte GT. I think it's a Forte 5 GT or Forte GT. There's, and I think there's a manual Sentra, Nissan Sentra somewhere that also might be enthusiast friendly. But like, and as you mentioned, the the WRX. But it just seems like we're missing. People have to check out all of these cars. It's not a, it's not as long. It's not as long of a list as like. If I told someone to check out all of the compact crossovers in the mar- in the market, you'd be doing that for like a year. Um, I think if you're in the, in the market for like one of these engaging sedans, then you should probably give the N line one one look over. So, uh, with that in mind, I would like to talk about a vehicle that is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum uh, than the Elantra of any kind. And that is the 2021 slash 2022, because there's no real difference, uh, Chevrolet Suburban. 
Nice. This is a big SUV, right? It is. a big body on frame SUV. And specifically, so not only is this a redesigned version of the old Suburban, it's a redesigned version. It's it's the all new version of the Suburban. That means it gets the independent rear suspension and the new platform that the Denali version of the Yukon and the Escalade we already talked about on the show got. But what makes this one interesting and why I want to talk about it on this episode is because mine had the three liter Duramax turbo diesel uh, six-cylinder engine, which is my first time driving this motor. Okay, let me just, we have to reiterate, the Suburban and the Tahoe are different vehicles. The Suburban is the bigger, longer wheelbase one, right? Yes. Okay, and now you you can get this thing with this diesel. It's a three-liter turbo diesel, right? Yeah, and it was available in the Silverado last year, I believe. I All think right. they waited until this generation for Suburban use. It, it's available across... The entire platform, uh, you can get it in the Cadillac, in the GMC, and the Chevrolet. So it, it, it's uh, finally here. I mean, we haven't had a light-duty diesel in a Suburban since oof, the 90s. And even then, I don't think that was a light-duty. I think you had to get the 2500 HD, and I think that was like a 6.5-liter turbo diesel V8. So this is a very, very different motor. Uh, it comes with 277 horsepower and 460 pound-feet of torque. And that torque arrives at 1500 RPM, which is super, super low. Um, if you're keeping score at home, compared to the 6.2 V8 that comes uh, as an option on the Suburban and, again, every GMT platform uh, of this model year, that one has 460 pound-feet of torque as well. So it it will match the V8, and it swamps the 5.3 liter, which only has 383 pound-feet of torque. Uh, I want to add to the 6.2 liter version of the of the truck. I think this is only available in, like, top trim versions of the of the of the no, truck right? that is not correct i believe you can get it absolutely everywhere in this in the uh, suburban lineup and it's oh, not, my mistake i'm looking at the wrong market <laughs> yeah and it's not super expensive either uh i it's i can't remember offhand how much it adds but it's not a huge amount of money so like let's say you wanted suburbans are expensive regardless right these days right. uh you they've turned into this weird kind of i mean once upon a time my, my when i was growing up my my parents had a suburban because it was a relatively cheap way to be able to carry a lot of people or things and uh nowadays they start at like 52 grand that's like the cheapest one you can get and i think they go up to like 70 or 80 or something it's just nuts I'm not seeing the 6.2 being available on other trim levels. I was talking then. diesel. Why are you talking about the 6.2? <laughs> Cuz you were comparing the 6.2 to the diesel. Oh, That's I had no idea. Stuff. I just assumed you were talking about the diesel. Uh, okay, thanks Ben. I think I appreciate you listening. Yeah, the uh, 6.2 is available with the High Country, but why would we talk about the engine that's not in the vehicle on drive? <laughs> okay, Ben, go ahead. Take it take wow. it. Take Sammy it is miffed. Sammy is miffed. If you want to get that uh, 6.2. It's like two grand or fifteen hundred dollars more um, in the high country. But the base suburban with a diesel is only fifty seven nine forty, which is like a little less than a grand more than the base suburban with the five three. That is a crazy deal. And I'm going to say something that might be controversial, especially since Sammy's still irritated with me. Um, I think that the Duramax turbo diesel is the best version of the suburban you could buy. Period, regardless of which trim level you're at. And does that is that because that that torque is so easily accessible and the fuel economy gains are are solid? Like, is that it's a good blend of fuel efficiency and um, 
and performance. Exactly. It is. And price, I guess, right? Well, yeah, because you get so much for so little. Like, this is a vehicle, when I drove it, I took it on a road trip, probably about 300 miles, and I was driving through the mountains, so it was up and down. It was very rarely flat. Uh, I wasn't towing anything. I didn't have a huge load. We were two passengers with, like, uh, enough gear for a cottage weekend. And the vehicle returned, like, 24 miles per gallon on the highway. That is absolutely nuts for something the size of a small battleship. Absolutely. Um, I also want to add, what tr- do you know what trim level you had? Sorry, I didn't hear what trim yeah, level you had. Yeah, I had the Premier, which was the top, the top premier. tier. Okay. You can't get the diesel. There's only one trim level that doesn't offer the diesel, and that's yeah. the Z71, which is super strange. So, like, you can't get the hardcore off-road stuff with the diesel. You'd think you would want that because yeah. you'd be able to drive longer on the trail where it's hard to find fuel, right? Like, it's just I it's agree just with logical. you on that. Um, what else is it makes the the suburban so? I mean, there's more to the suburban than just this motor, though, right? Well, yeah. I mean, as with all suburbans, it has a ton of cargo space. Yeah, uh, the vehicles move to an independent rear suspension was important, but not just mm-hmm. for comfort, because I mean, like it, at this point. There was once upon a time, you got different suspension tunes for GMC, Chevrolet, and Cadillac. But at this point in time, with the right trim level, you can get magnetic ride control. You can get air suspension across all three of them. So you're really kind of asking yourself, what price point do I want to pay? And what kind of styling do I want? And what does my interior look like? That's the only real question when you're looking at these three vehicles. Mm -hmm. But... Um, moving to the independent rear suspension didn't just improve handling or comfort. What it did was lower the load floor in the rear because for a very long time, the Suburban had seats that you had to physically remove from the vehicle to get a flat load floor. They didn't fold. And then when they, the, the previous generation truck, they added a fold flat feature, but it raised the load floor by like five or six inches or something. So <laughs> it was really tough to lean in and grab stuff or even put stuff in there, especially yeah. compared to like an Expedition or any other large suv for that matter which didn't ask you to do that Uh, and i think this is an important feature of the i mean you get one of these big suvs because you like the amount of cargo space they have right yeah and not just cargo space but people space and compromising on the third row just doesn't add up sometimes and i think now that now that there is less of a compromise there this makes the vehicle even more um, uh, appealing, right? Yeah, for, for sure. Families, it, has, it has almost 145 cubic feet of, of storage space, which is like, that's approaching minivan levels, which is really hard to do in an SUV. It's it's absolutely enormous. But what's what's also wild is like, even if you fill the truck with seven people, so all three rows are occupied, you still have 41 cubic feet of cargo space behind that third row. And that's the big difference between the Suburban and the Tahoe. It's not so much passenger room in the back, which is still decent for adults, but it's that extra cargo space you get from the extended platform. And I mean, for reference, like the trunk of a large sedan is like 20 cubic feet. And I think a, a um, you know a decent size compact crossover would give you like 50 cubic feet total. So yeah. just behind the third row, you have 41 in the Suburban. So it, it also has power folding at the premier level, which makes it really easy to access that, that room. And uh, the seats in the middle, I had captain's chairs. So they fold flat and you can tilt them forward too if you want to climb into the back, which is pretty useful. Um, but getting back to the diesel engine, the, mm-hmm. the fuel economy, it, it absolutely destroys the V8s at, at, in the real world. It's not yeah. even close. But you really don't give up any power. Acceleration is is excellent. 
even when you're on the highway, even when you're, you know, it's, it's not going to throw you back, but you're never going to feel like it's lacking. And around town, it's, it's perfectly adequate. Like it is the, it is the best match for a giant platform like this one. That sounds pretty, and I mean, what, is there a difference in towing figures? I figure the diesels tow pretty well too, right? And it, most of the time, these big SUVs, they're, they're good towing companions. So it's, it's about the same. I think it's right around 8,000 pounds. I think the max tow for um, a Suburban is 8,400 or 9,000 or something like that. I, I want to say 8,400. I don't know off the top of my head. With vehicles like this at this size, the big issue is gross vehicle weight because they're so large. The more features you add into it, uh, the more leather and whatever and heated and cooled seats you take away from towing capability because mm-hmm. the platform just gets heavier and heavier. Uh, but it's it's, it's it, the only vehicle I think that's going to out-tow a Suburban is a full-size pickup. And the yeah. versatility of a Suburban versus a full-size pickup, if you carry people, is much larger. And it's a much more comfortable experience. But there are things about this truck that I did not like, Sammy. Okay, what do you mean? Like what? Well, what do you what do you think? What do you think the worst part of driving a suburban is? Um, I mean, me personally, driving a, a suburban in a city is probably a nightmare. Yeah, it is a total nightmare uh, for a variety of reasons. This thing is outrageously long. Mm-hmm. It makes it tough to find a parking space that it will fit into, and then it makes it tough to fit it into that space once you've located it. But okay. a- another problem with its size is visibility is really not very good. If you can hmm. see down the road, but you can't see what's in front of the truck. Yeah, and I've heard this. I've heard this complaint levied to the these GM SUVs and the trucks, um, the pickups. The frontward visibility is not like, especially directly in front of the vehicle, or even a few a few feet in front of the vehicle is not is not impressive. It's like disturbing. It, it is definitely disturbing. It's the kind of truck where if you're driving it around other people, you do not feel comfortable. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if you're in like a yard and there's kids running around or your family's out there, I would want them all to be in one spot where I could see <laughs> them and have them not move the whole time I was driving this vehicle. It, it's just, it's just no thank you. Like it, it is uncomfortable to uh, try to navigate the blind spots and the bulk of this truck. It always bothers me when I'm driving a vehicle like this that honestly at times can feel just massive lengthwise. Um, and going into the city where I have to make a turn when I know that there's like uh, I'm I have to cross through a bike lane or something like that, and I'm like that's it's a big vehicle, so I don't want to cause too much of a of a headache on the poor bikers to have to slow down or watch out or wait for me. But it always is, it's just like you have to be aware of just how much car is in front of and behind you um, when you're piloting this in in compact situations like the city. Yeah, and and I have to say that the extra size feels unnecessary. I, I don't understand why these vehicles keep getting larger and larger and larger. It doesn't benefit anybody. When I'm inside the Suburban, I feel somewhat ridiculous just by how removed I am from the road and right. how much is between me and whatever is around me. It, you really feel way too elevated and insulated from uh, the experience of driving, which is kind of crazy considering how much momentum this thing has when it's just burning down the highway. On the highway, you don't notice it as much because there's so much more room to maneuver. But like once you get into a town or even on a secondary road, it's not a vehicle that likes to be pushed. No. Even with the magnetic ride control, it never feels dangerous, but it can it can get uncomfortable. I was going to ask because I think that certain trim levels offer or come equipped with magnetic ride control, which is a which is a bit of a, a halo feature for General Motors. Yeah, and, this one had mine had it the premiere, and I don't remember it 
um, making. I, I mean, I remember the the I driven I've driven an Escalade. I haven't driven these new um, these new SUVs yet. I've driven the Escalade instead, which also has adaptive uh, adaptive damper with magnetic ride control. And I don't remember it feeling particularly like magnetic ride control was doing a lot in this situation. Well, it's, it's, it definitely improves comfort, but I find yeah. that for performance, you only really notice an increased performance in the shorter wheelbase vehicles like the Tahoe and the Yukon. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, when they had the live axle, which is every generation except for this one, mm-hmm. it was not that much of a handicap when it came to handling compared to yeah. the Ford Expedition's IRS because the magnetic ride control kept things um, in line. It, mm-hmm. it was very predictable and I enjoyed driving it. So everyone had complained that, well, not everyone, but a, a vocal minority had complained about how long it took GM to go to an independent rear in its large SUVs. It didn't really make a difference until that load floor thing happened. And then, you know, yeah. it was no longer competitive. So I can see I, why. I agree with you on that. I think performance-wise, the, the independent rear suspension didn't make as big of an impact, but... Comfort-wise, practicality-wise, it did. I think that's an important – it's a, a packaging thing that really improves here. And Can you talk to – Sorry, go, go on. Ahead. No, no, ask your question. I was going to ask if you could tell me a little bit more about the interior of the cabin in terms of quality, in terms of usability, um, and whether or not like uh, General Motors' interior design language is leaving you kind of bored or – or tired. So I was actually about to go there. That's that's what I was going to say next. So I'm glad you asked. Uh, I the the other part of the suburban experience that I was not super impressed with was the interior. So keep in mind that I had the premier version of the truck. The premier starts at seventy thousand or seventy one thousand with my diesel engine, and you can easily start adding up gear and uh, very quickly you're driving a much more like there's there's multiple premium packages. They're about four forty five hundred dollars each you can start adding those on to get things like sunroofs and the rear camera mirror that you want uh sorry that that gm is convinced that we want and that we definitely don't want um there's a trailering package and all sorts of stuff there's a performance package which is a little weird it gets you like a, okay. a cat bat exo- cat back exhaust um but <laughs> all this to say you can be driving a vehicle that costs between 70 and eighty thousand dollars and the interior is in no way reflective of that. It feels still too plasticky. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels it, there's leather and whatnot, and everything's yeah. wrapped and covered. And but, some stitching, probably. You see some stitching somewhere. Yeah, you see some stitching, but at the same time, like just the plastic elements. The vehicle's so big that where mm. they do use plastic, it's super obvious. Like, it's, it's yeah. right there in your face. You're going to come into contact with it. It doesn't necessarily wear very well, like where you're kicking with your feet or, you know, where you're leaning on stuff. It's not a, it's not a high-end experience. And that is something I think you should expect at that price point. And that lets me down a little bit vis-a-vis the Suburban. I thought that... The design language had improved a little bit where it was hidden a bit. I think you see a lot of other vehicles that have a lot of plastic. They can tend to they tend to hide it with a with a clever design. And I don't think that happens very often in these cars. I mean, you feel the pl- I mean, I think there's even like plastic elements on the steering wheel. There's yeah. there's a very strange like uh, shutter in the uh, like a shuttered storage area storage area in the dashboard so, that also and then there's also a changed like um 
gear selector too, like a bunch of buttons and stuff. Yeah, so the gear selector, we've complained in the past about the GMC selector that is buried underneath the center stack and it has those buttons that you pull for reverse, push for drive, and it's kind of a non-intuitive place. They essentially took that and they moved it up onto the stack on the close to the driver. So there's this like line of buttons next to this pop, well, not pop up, but the, the vertical infotainment screen. And that's where you do all your shifting. I mean, I don't need a physical shifter uh i'm not married to that i think dodge has done a really good job or sorry ram has done a really good job with the rotary dial they use in the ram because it uh it gives you a lot of space on the console right Mm -hmm. but the buttons i don't know it's like it's harder to it it maybe it's not but mentally it seems a little harder to move from one button to the next quickly like where i notice it is when i come to my street to park Sometimes I have to park on one side. Sometimes I have to park on the other. It depends on the day of the week. And I have to do a U-turn. And to do a U-turn, I pull into my alley. And I like to be able to shift quickly between reverse and drive so I can get out before traffic hits me. But when you have these button setups, it doesn't always work properly because you have to align your brake pedal with the button and all this. Whereas with a shifter that's already in your hand, it's one fluid motion either front or back, and if it's, if it's a knob, you can keep your hand on the knob and also do a fluid motion that continues from drive to reverse or reverse to drive. With buttons, you're lifting off and you're pushing. I realize I'm overthinking this to a huge degree, mm-hmm. but it's something I, I noticed. I want to add to this, because when you're using the gear select, the, a gear stick, um, you run, the, gear, you run the, the transmission from drive neutral to reverse, right? And, yes. and back down again. And same with the knob, you do the same thing. But when you use the buttons, some cars still run through neutral drive neutral reverse and reverse neutral drive they have to go through this extra step of selecting neutral when you don't have that like when you're just pressing a button like r or d you don't imagine the end being like a gear that has to the neutral being a gear that has to select in the yeah, process but you also well. might be and pushing, it slows down the process of it and you're pushing like you're either pushing or pulling it's not the same motion right yeah so it, it can be different depending on how these buttons are set up. So that that's kind of it, it. Just feels like unnecessary. Uh, it feels like reinventing the wheel a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But other than that, so my 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 two biggest complaints about the vehicle are an interior that doesn't match the price, especially as you start sitting back in the second and third row, um, and the just sheer unwieldiness of the size of the suburban. I, I don't think anyone who lives in a city should buy a suburban. It doesn't make any sense. It is a vehicle that is des- destined to perform its best outside of city limits. And so you, you said you drove it on the highway. Yes. Um, it had, I'm, I'm assuming you used some of those uh, driver's aids or safety features to, to, to make a, a long trip a little well, bit easier? It, or it has adaptive cruise control. That's pretty much it. That's it. Okay, great. And how I does think that, it has lane keeping. I don't remember. <laughs> I love that about these cars sometimes. It's like we don't really know if the lane keeping worked or not, but whatever. Um, was it confidence inspiring? It's not Super Cruise, and I don't know when and how Super Cruise will come to these kind of features. They, it, I mean, technically it's capable. I don't know why they're they're waiting to give these kind of. And it's an already an expensive vehicle, so why not? Well, they want to protect Escalade because, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, what's the difference between this and an Escalade? Price, uh, interior, and exterior styling. All, all the other features are the same. I think the only difference is you can't get the 5.3 in the Escalade. It's only 6.2 or diesel, right? Mm-hmm. So it's they have to do something to protect their halo vehicles. And I guess that's one of the... Technology is one of the ways they're doing that. Um, I also wanted to say that there... I mean, if you have anything else you want to talk about with this, um, with this Suburban in particular, I wanted to add as well that Ford recently revealed a new Expedition 
which looks kind of ridiculous because they've made an off an off road version of the vehicle called the Timberline. Well, Did I you mean, hear about this? Did you see this? I saw a little bit about it. The suburban uh, Z seventy one is essentially that. Yeah. So they, they do like uh, the, the bumpers are all wacky and wild and whatnot. And yeah. How popular do you think these trim levels are? I mean, I guess they wouldn't have made them if it wasn't somebody asking for them. But I, It's got to be a style thing because going off-road with a vehicle this size is quite difficult unless you yeah. absolutely don't care about your paint or, or dents or anything like that because it is so big and it is going to have trouble fitting around corners and all that fun stuff. And the Z71 also comes with... Um, uh, what are they called? Running boards? I don't know why you would want those on an off-road vehicle. Uh, but anyway, it's it's kind of an affectation at that point. Um, I, I saw that there's this really interesting feature that's borrowed from the Bronco, this sort of like trail turn, which is meant to like, this sounds ridiculous in practice. It basically holds a, like a brake kind of thing. It locks an inside rear wheel so that when you when you hit the gas, it like makes a shorter turn. And that sounds insane to me in a car. It's the very, size of very the, Batman-esque. Of an, yes, it is. Why doesn't it just shoot a grappling hook to a tree? You know? My, exactly my question. And exactly why Ford no longer replies to my emails. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, anything else you want to say about the Suburban this week? No, I think I've pretty much covered the Suburban. Would you recommend Would you recommend the Suburban or the GMC variant or the Escalade variant? I, Are I these think, particularly... Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, I think the Yukon Denali is the best mix of features and price if you're okay. looking between the poles of Suburban and Escalade. Uh, if you're going to do towing, if you're going to be on the highway, if you're going to do road trips uh, and you need a huge amount of interior space for whatever reason, then yeah, I think the diesel version of the Suburban is appealing. Um Maybe stick to a low price point. Stick to that base model, and you're paying, uh, you know, just under sixty grand. That's not so bad. But I don't think the luxury is really there, and the return on the uh, vehicle's price isn't available in the suburban. I think if mm. you want to spend a lot of money on something like this, you're going to have to look at Cadillac or GMC. And then this product, like uh, this this market segment in particular, is it still relevant today? Yeah, because people need to tow. I mean, yeah. not everyone wants... They need to wants... tow and they need to, have a, they need to carry a bunch of people. But right? also not everyone wants to drive a pickup truck. And those people still need to tow stuff. So they don't have any use for an open cargo bed, but they do have a large trailer. Maybe it's a boat, maybe it's horses. And maybe, like you said, they, they do need to carry a large number of people. Not all the time, but I mean, most three-row SUVs, the third row is used in a pinch. So if you have grandkids coming over and you want to be able to transport everybody every once in a while, and you want to tow your horses, then yeah, Suburban is going to do that for you. What a lifestyle. I need to live this life. I, I know. We're really, <laughs> you're really, uh, you need to catch up. That's all, that's all, I, need, all I have to say. Um, and you know what, now that we're finished uh, talking about the two vehicles that we drove this week, I'm going to let our listeners know where they can find uh, past episodes and where they can find future episodes. The easiest way to do that is to go to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. Um, when you're there, you'll see links to our recent episodes, past episodes, and you'll also see some buttons that will make it easy for you to subscribe to our podcast. Super easy, in fact. Um, in addition to that, you can go, th- you can scroll around our website. You can see photos of the cars that we were driving. You can see links to the stories that we've uh, written about the cars, and of course, because you, you're going to want to, um, there's a way for you to get in touch with us. There's a contact form. You fill it out. It lands in our inbox. Or if you don't want to go through all of that hassle, 
You can just reach out to Ben or myself on social media. You can find Ben on Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore Ha, like you're laughing. And if you do listen to us on your favorite podcatcher, it really, really, really helps us out if you leave a a comment or make some type of rating or anything like that. It brings the show in front of a larger audience, and it's extremely beneficial. The other thing I wanted to suggest is if you enjoy what you're hearing and you want to make a small, tiny contribution, you can do that at Ko-Fi, ko-fi forward slash unnamed automotive podcast, where you can leave us a tip or what have you. Sammy, what are you going to be talking about next week? Uh, next week, I'll be driving the uh, Toyota Corolla. I'm going through a whole bunch of compact cars, so the Corolla's next. All right. I am also going to be driving a compact car, but it's a little bit different. It is the Mini Cooper John Cooper Works Convertible. Oh, all right. You're going top down, huh? I am always going top down, Sammy, especially <laughs> on Splash Mountain. I can't wait to, I can't wait to hear about it. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Take care.